Coming up this week on Up in the Blue Seats, we talk with Larry Brooks about Artemi Panarin's statement last week on what it means for the Rangers and the NHL. We also have a pair of guests on the show, WABC New York Radio personality and Rangers fan Sid Rosenberg joins us. We also chat with NHL analyst, three-time Stanley Cup champion, Mr. Devil, Ken Danico. All that and more next on Up in the Blue Seats for the New York Post. Welcome to Up in the Blue Seats podcast, a New York Rangers podcast from the New York Post. Make sure you subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. If you're using Apple, give us a five-star rating and also write in a nice positive review. Joining Ron this week, our special guest, Larry Brooks, per usual, as well as Ken Danico, Mr. Devil, joins the show, and WABC radio personality, Sid Rosenberg. But first, here he is, the star of the show, number 10, Ron Duguay. Hi, everyone. As promised, every week, we want to make the best show possible with some interesting guests. And I like to mix it up. So this week, I'm going to have a radio personality. He's been around forever, Sid Rosenberg, who happens to be a friend. I've done his show many times, and we love talk hockey. And so I love to hear his insights on how he got started to be a Ranger fan because he's a lot of fans are trying to decide at an early age, am I going to be a Ranger fan? I'm going to be an Islander fan. So we're going to get his take on that, plus his season of 94 with the Rangers winning his Stanley Cup, what it meant to him. And also, I want to discuss him as a person because he went through some difficult times. He wrote a book, The Highs and Lows of a Radio Bad Boy. So we'll get into that a little bit. And then Kenny Danico, who's been a good friend, New Jersey Devil. We've worked together, and he's got some great stories. Longtime Devil, 20 years, won three Stanley Cups. And we're going to tap into that year again where the Rangers and the Devils won at it for wanting to move on to the Stanley Cup Finals, the year that a lot of people listen to have talked about, 94 Stanley Cup season, where the Rangers end up beating the Devils in 94. And Kenny's going to give his take on that. What we're talking about now is the Rangers moving forward. Will this season get started? Which city will they be playing in? The Hub City. There's talk. It could be Toronto, could be Vegas. If it was up to me, I love the idea of going to Vegas. Why? There's a certain energy of being in Vegas. When you're thinking about playing in the Stanley Cup Finals, you want that environment. So I think it would be fun to for have the Rangers play in Vegas. Toronto could be good too because it'd be close to New York City, close to home. Advantages there. So all that remains to be seen, but let's get at it on our new episode of Up in the Blue Seats. And Ron, also your birthday is coming up on July 6th. So happy early birthday. I guess when we reconvene next week, you would have turned, what, is it 64 this year? I'm I'm going to be 63 and feeling awesome. So tomorrow, I'm going to go head west. My kids are out there, grandkids. And I'm going to celebrate 4th of July with them, with my whole family. I haven't been able to, like a lot of folks, we've been kind of locked in in our different communities. And so I look forward to that. And I will celebrate my 63rd birthday on July 6th in California with my kids. After that, I'll be back. And I look forward to our next show. 63 going on 40, as Ron, as you, as well as my mom, shout out to Mama Brown, ages just incredibly. 
Exactly. I wish to be like that, but I'm already bald at 29, so I'm not on a good path. But what what do your kids get you? Like me, my dad, like Father's Day, like or birthday, I get him like a gift card. I don't really know what to get him. What does your family get you? Do they get you hockey equipment? Do they get you memorabilia? Like what's a Ron Duguay birthday present? Well, I have a sitting area in my home every morning where I sip on my D, read my uh, New York Post, and I'm surrounded by photos and pictures of my family because I miss them. I don't live with them. I live with my son, Noah, so I miss them. So I've asked them to frame themselves in a nice picture that we're going to take near the beach uh, this coming week and uh, so I can put it up on my wall. So a nice famed picture of their families. And it's a beautiful family. I would say the genes are incredible. Uh, so congrats on that. And you talked before, Ron, about Toronto versus Vegas. It seems like Toronto is going to happen. And, you know, I think a lot of people could argue no time difference. You don't have the three hours back. Your body doesn't need to adjust. And while there's a little bit of travel, Toronto's not a far trip from New York, and there's the benefit to that. Don't you worry, and while you say the excitement of Vegas is that some of these guys in the downtime and they're bored, it's hard to lock yourself in a hotel room and not go to the strip, not head to the casino, not head to a club. It seems like Vegas, there could be forms of distraction that you don't want for guys in a playoff run. Well, I can only speak to what it was like for me when we were in a playoff format. We had strict uh, curfews and we were told what to do, what not to do. And especially now with uh, there's going to be league rules where players are going to be restricted what they can and cannot do. So when I say Vegas, I'm talking about the lights of Vegas, all of what you see. It goes 24-7, right? So there's an energy there. But as far as worrying about players walking into casino, I don't think any of that's going to happen. It's going to be interesting. The NHL has said 26 players have tested positive for COVID-19 since June 8th. So these next couple of weeks, it's going to be a wild ride. Uh, After next week's show happens, it is expected that they do get to training camp. So lots of things can change and can go down in the coming weeks. And one of those things that happened last week, as I had to break the news with you and Molly, is our Temi Panarin statement on Instagram. And you and Larry Brooks will analyze exactly what he said, what it means for the Rangers and the league next, right here on Up in the Blue Seats. And now welcome in from the New York Post, Larry Brooks, and you can find him at NYP underscore Brooksy. I'm still kind of thinking about uh, Artemi Panarin's quote from last week. What he says, not just what he said, but the power of what he said. I was kind of surprised this came out of him. When you think about what he said, were you surprised at all? Uh, Well, Panarin referred to escrow and, and the responsibility for the players to take some action to reverse the chunk of money the NHL takes out of the players paychecks on 50 50. I was surprised at the presentation because to me it just it came from nowhere I assume he had had conversations with people and and this had been building up but there was an absence of of public dialogue on it and so for this simply to appear as a standalone was stark but it is I think reflective of concerns of many, many players that the escrow system doesn't work. The problem is that escrow is not a quirk of the system. Escrow is the underpinning of a 50-50 system. You cannot have a guaranteed 50-50 split of revenue or any split of revenue without escrow to enforce it. So as long as the players are trapped in a hard cap situation, they are going to face escrow. Now, can you limit escrow? Can you cap escrow? These are part of these are parts of the negotiations that are ongoing now between the league and the players' association. And escrow 
of course, is going to be exacerbated by the decline in revenue for this year and potential decline in revenue for next year because no one knows whether the NHL will be playing in front of fans next year, you know, or what what the health situation will be for 2021, much less finishing 1920. Larry, I know that you really enjoy your work. You love writing, but you've shared with me that you love the interaction with the players and seeing them practice and going to the game. So do you know anytime soon will you be able to see the Rangers getting on the ice practicing? Is that in the near future for you? Any conversation there? The My understanding is the NHL is working on plans so that training camp is open to the media you know, to to a limited degree. I'm sure they're they're all the teams are working on social distancing and and you know I, it won't be it won't be normal like as if anything is. But it, it won't be whereas you just show up. You know, if you if you want to come to practice that day, you just show up and and you go to practice. I think there'll there'll be a limit on the number of reporters who are allowed in the arena. But the NHL is working to guarantee some sort of access to the rink. So yeah, but I'll be <laughs> six feet apart from the from the guy next to me. So I guess we won't be whispering we won't we won't be saying hey you know uh Lundquist uh he doesn't look so good today <laughs> you know he's shouting hey Hank doesn't look yeah. so good so things for you like everyone else is going to be different we just find a way to make it work so anyways Larry talking with you we'll talk next week thanks My guest today, former NHL player, drafted first round, 18th overall, 1982, played 20 seasons, winning three Stanley Cups, having played 1,283 games with the New Jersey Devils, also winning the Bill Masterson Award in 1990, now a color analyst for the New Jersey Devils. Welcome, my friend, Kenny Danico. What's up, dudes? How are you? Larry, good to be on with you guys and dudes. Let me correct you. The Masterson was 2000. I was uh, still a pup in 1990, but that's okay. How are you guys doing? Hope everybody's well and staying safe and healthy. Yeah, we're doing doing well, Kenny. Uh, so you and I last night were chatting because of, uh, I know that uh, you revisited yourself as a rookie watching yourself on MSG, MSG2, a past game where in your, I believe it was in your second game in the NHL, playing against me where I was playing against the Red Wings. And so I have to ask you, Kenny, uh, because it's fresh on my mind, what was it that you saw about yourself in your rookie season on the ice? <laughs> well, dude, I, I was dying. I mean, it was hilarious. First off, uh, us being uh, good friends and, and watching this game, and I hadn't seen games. I, I've watched, you know, some of the classics they've been showing during this pandemic, and you have nothing else to do. And most of them were championship games or playoffs when I was 28, 30, 35 years old. Never really have seen a game since. So I played in them uh, as a 19-year-old. So when they threw on this 1983 rookie classic game, John McClain was on the team, Pat Verbeek. We had a few rookies there uh, on that team. Steve Eiserman, I believe it was his second game as an 18-year-old for the Red Wings. And yes, there you were, dude. You were getting a ton of ice time. You even knocked my helmet off first shift and I played for about a minute with no helmet on so I my blocks were flowing just like yours and I could have done the ooh la la Sassoon commercial or, or advertisement you did when you were a member of the New York Rangers. Yeah, it was priceless. It brought back good memories. I'm looking back and what did I see? I was a lot faster. I mean, 
Lou definitely stifled me. I just figured that out watching that game. I carried the puck more. I was jumping in the play. And believe it or not, it wasn't as slow as I thought. You know, sometimes you watch these early 80 games. The guys were moving, and you were awfully quick. And then, like I said, you got a lot of ice time. And playing against, just looking at the players, Brad Park and John O'Grodnick, and you go on down the list. It was fun memories. I had a lot of fun watching that game. Kenny, it's funny because I kind of remember that game, and I remember you in that first game because there was something different about you you had a look on your face like this guy he means business so i might have been sending you a message with knocking your helmet off (laughs) it it was great i mean my my wife and me were just we were laughing obviously she knows you and we did battle of blades and, and hung out a lot back in 2009 in toronto our little skating competition but i i i was dying dudes and then we I did post uh, on Instagram, as you saw, me racing for the puck. It was Pat Verbeek who took the hooking call on you on your dive there. But you were flying, and and that's where I noticed I was a lot faster back then because I I was catching up pretty quickly. (laughs) I I, I was dying, but what what great memories just watching an old game and a 19-year-old buck at the time. And, and like I said, I had some offense coming out of junior, but I guess it worked out. Lou put me in a role and certainly was able to play a few games for the Devils. But we all wanted to be that offensive star. And like I said, he put the dog collar on me when he came in 88 and said, Ken, if you go over the red line, I'm going to zap you. <laughs> so, Kenny, that, that leads me to my next question, because I know of your career, 20 years, uh, you have a record for having played most games, three Stanley Cups. But when you look back, had you had been drafted on another team coming out of juniors you were putting up points going to another theme do you think we would have seen a different Kenny Danico well you know we we all look back in our junior career so many players who were drafted that had offensive numbers a lot of guys did uh, even playing defense back then but to translate that to the National Hockey League is awfully difficult playing uh, against men playing against the best best players in the world so I think I I always look back in all sincerity and, and, and joke about it, but we talked about it a lot, and Lou still laughs at me when he took me into his office and, and had told me, Kenny, I like my team doing orchestra. Uh, there's drummers, there's violinists, there's pianists, and to make beautiful music, we all have to play our instruments to a T, and, and I laugh about it to this day with him still, but uh, he understood that if I want to have some longevity in the league and help the New Jersey Devils, I had to have a specific role. And that was, you know, fortunately enough when the game was played a little nastier, some toughness and um, be able to defend and, and protect teammates along the way. So I took his advice to heart and understood that I can't be the jack of all trades and master of none. And I think I, I, I realize now so many players that I played junior against, and I always look and I go, we're so focused on ourselves, and we go, what happened to that guy? He had a cup of coffee in the league. He was a 100-point player in the in uh, Canadian junior hockey, or he only lasts a few years. And a lot of the times, it's easier said than done to understand that you can't do certain things you did in junior, and I wasn't the brightest bulb in the tree, but I took it to heart, like I said, what Lou Lamarello had told me. And when I was walking out of the office all angry and, and upset, and I actually threw a chair, I, I slant, was ready to slam the door. And he says, oh, by the way, Kenny, if you master that drum, you're going to play 15 years in this league. And just to piss him off, I played 20. But uh, he And we laughed about that when, when I retired in 2003 in the pre- press conference. Uh, he, he knew 
I, I had to have a defined role. And, and thank God I listened along the way. What if I had been a different player on another team? I don't know. I might not have played as long, dude, because I would have sacrificed some defense and, and tried to be more offensive. And I know I didn't have Scott Niedemeyer's legs, so uh, it was probably the right advice at the time. But like I said, we all want to do more, want to do more. And, and it's hard, easier said than done, like I said, to accept your role. I accepted my role as a, you know, in the trenches type of guy. And, and it worked out. Uh, I was grateful enough to play with some great teammates and win three Stanley Cup championships. You had been in the league, say, eight, nine, ten years when Larry Robinson and, and Jacques Lemaire came to New Jersey. The team, you had had some success. The team had had some success, but fairly limited. What exactly was the tone that they set when they came in? And what exactly did Larry, as, as much as anybody, teach you that turned you and the defense corps and the devils into a powerhouse for the next decade? Well, I think obviously with the, the winning pedigree, those two guys coming from Montreal and all the championships, whether it's players, management, or in, in coaching. I mean, if you can't listen to Larry Robinson and Jacques Lemaire, who can you listen to? Our team was starting to get better. You're right, Larry. We had some good young pieces along the way. Some of those good young pieces were traded. I mean, you have to trade good players to get good players, and that was orchestrated by Hall of Fame general manager Lou Lamorello trying to build a winner and build a team that he felt uh, was going to be sustainable and, and a team that can buy for the Stanley Cup every year. It doesn't I mean, it's going to materialize, but he really uh, had a vision, and obviously, it was a pretty, pretty good vision. Like I said, uh, I didn't think I'd be that guy still standing in '95. I already, already played 12 years and, and win a Stanley Cup uh, when the likes of the Mullers and Verbeek uh, were traded along the way uh, to, to build the team that Lou Lamorello felt he, he needed. But Larry Robson, I always say, I'd played 10, 11 years when Larry came to the team, and he taught me more about defense in the first week than I didn't understood in the first 11 years of my career. And the first thing he said to me was, Kenny, I love your intensity, your toughness. Uh, we need that. But it's about positioning and stick positioning. And you'll reserve so much more energy when the time and place is there to take somebody out hard. But you don't have to go galloping all over the ice. And and I really listened to him. I think he prolonged my career a lot about just understanding the game and positioning. And, and I talk about stick and, and you hear it constantly in the broadcast today uh, an effective stick well larry brought that out in the 90s when he came to the devils and sparks everybody talked about trap 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 we never heard that word in our dressing room it was all about playing away from the puck and yes our forwards were terrific at backtracking and back checking and helping us defense out but larry had always told me just point your stick at the puck i don't care if the guy's 10 feet away and he would tell me to close the blade and just point the tip of the stick and i didn't understand that I, i'd fight with him in practice or argue about about it saying but I, I cover more area when my stick blade is open and uh, he goes no just point the stick at right at the puck subtle movements don't sway too much all those little things that, that make you effective all of a sudden in games I'm 10 feet away from a guy I'm breaking up a play in front of the net even when I don't realize the pass is going there because my stick is on the ice and pointed like Larry said at the puck it, it was amazing how effective it became he, he just really taught me about playing with inside the dots and, and preserving some energy and yeah 
yes, uh, you have to be physical when uh, the time calls for it. But he just taught me so much about the game of defense and, and such a wonderful guy. I mean, you just love playing for him. You want to, you know, he's like that proud father. You, you, you want to make him proud. And Jacques Lemaire, no difference. I mean, he was just such a great technical coach on, on how he wanted the game to be played. And a lot of those years that a lot of the media doesn't bring up when they talk about, well, we were slowing the game down or we were hooking and holding. It really wasn't that all. We were always one of the top scoring teams in the league and nobody seems to mention that. We Guys sacrificed some points and assists, certainly some top skilled forwards we had, but that's because they were they played away from the puck. And I look at the Washington Capitals, Larry, and I think it took Alexander Ovechkin 12 years, 13 years, uh, as prolific and one of the greatest goal scorers, maybe the greatest goal scorer of all time, adjusted just a little bit. If you watch him in the playoffs, he's a foot inside the blue line. He's going down to block shots. He, he's deflecting passes. He's doing all the little things that your superstars have to do as well in order to win and, and go a long way. And, and you know, he, his effort everything else when they were having those great regular seasons, but they couldn't quite get it done in the playoffs. Well, his uh, play dom- it was, it had a dominoes effect throughout their lineup when you see your star guy, your captain, your goal scorer. Yeah, you need him to score goals, but at times you have to defend, and I thought he was terrific, and a big reason why the Capitals won the Cup. So the more things change, the more they stay the same at times come playoffs, I believe, as far as you got to be able to defend to win. And when you get your superstars buying in, and that's what Jacques Lemaire was so effective at, getting his stars to buy in. I know he battled with Scott Niedermeyer early in his career a lot. And he said, Nieder, Nieder I, I heard, even asked for a trade his second year. And, you know, the greatest skater I've seen in just effortless game, as you, his game was effortless, as you guys know, but Lemaire had said to him and would just smile and neither be frustrated. I, I want to be offense. I want to go, go, go. And Jock said, I need you to be a player that can be on the ice. Three, two up, three, two down, kill penalties, power play. And once you hone your defensive game, then I'll give you the green light. And Niedermeyer talks about it all the time. He says, it's the best thing. He says, yeah, I sacrificed maybe three, 400 points, but I got four Stanley Cup championship rings uh, to show for it. And, and Nieder will tell you all the time the same thing that Lemaire, he battled with him, but it made sense after his career and he reflected and it was all said and done. <laughs> So, Kenny, you talk about a learning curve before you guys start winning your Stanley Cup. Uh, recently, the Rangers celebrated their Stanley Cup in 94. They had to get through the Devils. And that's probably one of the series that everyone talks about. We've been talking about it. What is it your memory about going through that Stanley Cup? What did you guys learn after almost playing the Rangers even that whole year, but you end up losing? What is it that you learned from that series against the Rangers when they won in 94? Well, first off, that was one of the best playoff series, I think, ever still to this day as far as what it had, the Hall of Famers, the incredible goaltending from Richter and Broder, the physicality, the hatred, the nastiness for each other, which I think is important in rivalries that we do lose in today's game every once in a while, I think, uh, because the way it's gone. Like I said, I, I love the way it's gone, but sometimes you lose that. And I did a thing on Zoom with Mark Richter and Eddie Olchuk. We're doing ga- talking about game six, and they showed it in Canada, I believe, on Sportsnet during the pandemic. And I was kind of the the lone wolf on the other side of it. The NHL had us do it. And and we talked about that series. And and even Mark said, I mean, it was one of the great series. They were first in the National Hockey League regular season. We were second. They had 112 points. We had 106. And and what we did learn, I mean, somebody's got to win, somebody's got to lose. And that's what happens with point toss in game seven. And and Mark, you know, called his shot. And he that's what great players do, legends do, are able to to will his team to victory. We were up 2-0 in game six. Should have been 5-0. Mike Richter doesn't get enough credit. He was 
absolutely unbelievable to keep them in that game and the tie. And then Mark and company turned the tide in the second half of game six where we could have closed it out up three to two. Uh, Mark took over and, and willed his team, like I said, the victory. But I think what we learned is, is you always hear, dudes, that, you know, even keeled, you've got nothing yet. I think at two nothing, we thought we were going to the Stanley Cup finals and we forgot to play the second half. Yes, a great player had something to do with that, but we had some panic in our game. So when the 95 playoffs roll around, and we didn't have a particularly good year that season, even though it was a short and lockout season, we were fifth seed, I believe, but we were one of those teams just waiting for the playoffs. Just turn the switch. Well, we were going to be able to turn the switch from that experience in 94, and we weren't going to make the same mistake again as far as, you know, understanding it takes four victories to win all those cliches along the way, but you can't get too emotionally high or too emotional low. We stayed balanced throughout those playoffs. We're solid whether we won or lost, whether we had a bad period. And I think that was the big lesson we learned in the Eastern Conference Finals and why we thought in 95, even though we had a, a not a great year, some teams forgot about us. We were the same team, a lot of those players that came so close and we felt we were going to win the Stanley Cup in 94 if we got through the Rangers as well. But we learned along the way that, and that was from Jacques and Larry, and they mentioned it many times that, you know, you've got nothing until the series is over. And I think we were, we had one foot or one skate, as they say, in the Stanley Cup final when we were up 2 nothing and, and dominating the first half of that game. What was so unique about your team is, is the way you chewed up coaches and you just went through one coach after another and you won <laughs> three times with three different coaches. So can you compare the differences, I guess, and the similarities between Jacques, who won the first one, Larry Robinson, who won the second one, and Pat Burns, who was behind the bench for the third one. Yeah, and that, that was, you know, Lou Lamorello, Larry, as far as having a pulse on his team and understanding that uh, at different times, different years uh, throughout our tenure, as far as being a contender for the Stanley Cup, that you need different types of coaches along the way. Some Sometimes you need that spark, that in-your-face type coach. Sometimes you just need a coach, I will say in 2000, like Larry Robinson, who was a player's coach and he was, always would say, he says, this team is so talented. I just don't want to screw it up. I, I want to support them. And we respected Larry so much. And obviously, Jacques Lemaire really set the foundation of the way the Devils were going to be moving forward and play. And, and I believe when Jacques left, he, he had resigned saying that, you know, I'm falling on deaf ears. It's time for me to move on. Doesn't mean he's not a great coach. That's why you see so many great coaches coach five, six different teams. But at the time, uh, with the same team, it, it things change and players need a different voice along the way. Lemaire's the best coach I've ever had as far as understanding the game, no question about it, and really teaching uh, you to play like a team and understand every little aspect you need to win, and that's playing away from the puck, and that's playing as a five-man unit. But when Larry came in, and you brought it up, I mean, Robbie Vitorek was coaching. He was doing a pretty good job. We were first place late in the season. And Lou Amarello, shockingly, yes, we, we were surprised as well. We started to dip a little bit in the month of, or, or in late March. And he, he lets go of Robbie Fatorik and brings in Larry Robinson. And it was the right thing at the time because Lou felt it was Stanley Cup or bust. The team was that good that we just needed something else. Something wasn't working. We were starting to, you know, go the, in the wrong direction heading into the playoffs. Well, Larry, we already had that deep respect for him because he had the familiarity with the organization. But Larry was that nurturing type coach. And he just said, guys, get back to the way I know you're capable of playing. And, and I'm not going to, you know, he's not that rah-rah yelling type of coach, although he did have a, 
incredible speech in, in game uh, after we went down 3-1 in the Eastern Conference Finals to the Philadelphia Flyers. And boy, he had a tirade. And we hadn't seen that from Larry, but the timing was perfect. And he, he kind of said to us, this is the best team I have ever coached. He even mentioned my great Montreal Canadian teams. He says, you're blowing an opportunity here and, and you've got to do what I say and, and play the style that has made you successful and boy did we take it to heart and came back and, and uh from three to one beat the flyers in the eastern conference finals and then we went on to win uh, the stanley cup championship so it was just a different time but larry was the right person at the right time again when pat burns came he was a hard ass he was the in your face type coach i always didn't see eye to eye with the late great pat burns but that's okay coaches have to push the right buttons my my role personally was changing obviously I was an older player and I was going to be in and out at times and and you have to accept that it's hard when you're a competitor but Pat Burns at the time uh, Lou Lamorello felt was we were starting to get complacent as a team get a little complacent we needed a guy to fire us up give us a little spark and that's what Pat Burns was he he was a coach that uh, you bring him in I think he won three Jack Adams correct coach of the year you bring him in and for that short spurt he is going to be very effective so Pat was great. I gave him a cigar when he put me back in game seven in 2003. I said, well, I know we didn't always see eye to eye. And I know as a player, when you're in it, you're emotional. But I really appreciate you giving me that opportunity to go <laughs> to go out on top. And, and Pat and I had a big hug. And I was just very grateful, even though during those playoffs, during that season, uh, it was a tough relationship at times, personally speaking. But I know the players had a ton of respect for him. But Pat Burns got your attention. There's no question about it. He was that type of coach. And that was Lou Lamorello, again, recognizing what type of coaches. That, that, that's so important from the top is understanding. There's great coaches out there, but sometimes it's not a fit for your team. Lou always had the pulse on what type of coach you needed at that time. And we were getting complacent. Pat came in and did a, did a wonderful job for us to win our third Stanley Cup in 2003. Well, Kenny, we're going to wrap it here. We can talk forever. We love your insight and we appreciate you. I know whether you're a Devils fan or a Ranger fan or a hockey fan, everyone has a lot of respect for you. You've uh, well accomplished, hardworking guy. We love you on TV. So thanks for your time. And we have to get you back on again once this, once the playoffs get started, all right? I appreciate it, uh, dudes and Larry. And yes, we could have a fun one with a lot of great stories along the way. But I appreciate you having me on, dudes. I always love your respect, and I just loved watching that game the other night, 1983. Me playing against Doogie out there, that was pretty fun. <laughs> <laughs> all right, thanks, my friend. All right, guys, have a good day. My next guest is a radio personality. He is currently a co-host of Bernie and Sid in the Morning and Sid Sports Sunday on 77 WABC and an author of the book, The Highs and Lows of a Radio Bad Boy. Welcome, my friend, a big Ranger fan from Brooklyn, Sid Rosenberg. Sid, welcome to the show. I've been wanting to talk to you because often you and I will talk. I go on your show, we talk, but now I have an opportunity to get you on my show, get down to talking Rangers stuff. So welcome to the show. Well, this is a big honor for me, Ronnie. You know, I I tell you this all the time. Growing up as a kid, uh, that number 10 Ranger jersey, I wore that every big Ranger game. And look, I went on to love guys like Mark Messier and Brian Leach and Henrik Lundqvist and the rest of these guys. But I say this from the heart. Ron Duguay was 
and always will be my favorite New York Ranger. And now to be friends with you and be on your show, it's pretty, it's pretty surreal and unbelievable. So thank you for having me. So I have to ask you, how did your introduction to wanting to watch the Rangers versus the Islanders, how did that all happen for you? You know, it's, it's a good question. When I was a kid growing up, my dad was not a very big winter sports guy. My dad loved football and baseball. In fact, he was my little league coach in football and baseball. But we weren't, as a little kid, no Knicks and Rangers in the house for the most part. And then I went to Poly Prep, a school here in Brooklyn, a very well-to-do school, by the way, Ronnie. I'm talking about the you know millionaires, most of millionaires kids go to that school. And I started noticing all my buddies were really into hockey. And forget about the Jet Giant fight, forget about the Mets and Yankee fight. The real fight that my friends would get into, I mean, almost come to Fisticuff, was Rangers Islanders. So I was aware of the 1979 team that lost to the Canadians for the Stanley Cup with John Davidson. You were on that team. I was aware of that. But then I dove in head first in the early 1980s when you guys played the Islanders in four consecutive playoff seasons. And it really went down to my friend at Poly Prep as a young student in grade school. And I latched on the season you scored 40 goals. And after that, since then, for the last 40 years, I've been a diehard Ranger fan. So share with us, because we've been talking the last week or so about the 94 team winning the Stanley Cup, led by Messier. What was that season like for you as a Ranger fan? The buildup and the playoffs and the excitement, because we just talked to Kenny Danico about that series. What was that like for you as a fan? Well, it was amazing. You know, uh, you mentioned my book, You're Wrong and You're Ugly, The Highs and Lows of Radio Bad Boy. And I do state in the book, look, I'm a diehard New York Mets fan. I'm a diehard New York football giant fan. I'm a diehard New York Ranger fan. And all three of those teams have won championships in the last 40 years. I mean, the Mets only got one in 1986. The Giants have gotten four of them, right? A couple with uh, Phil and Hostel and a couple with Eli Manning. But for me, my greatest sports memory in terms of a championship season was that season. You know, all those former Edmonton Oilers, as you know, Ronnie, from Kevin Lowe, who just got inducted to the Hall of Fame last week. Jeff Bukaboom, Craig McTavish, obviously the best of the best, Mark Messier. And it was just an unbelievable ride. When that game against the New Jersey Devils, of course, when, when Stefan Matos scored maybe the most famous game-winning goal in the history of the Rangers. Mark Messier going out there and predicting I'll get a hat-trick and he gets a natural uh, hat-trick, of course. Uh, no, no power play goals, all, all even. It's just, it's just an amazing season. And, and each playoff series that the Rangers won, you know, after the Devils, you really thought they couldn't lose. But then I got to tell you, game seven against Pavel Bore in the Vancouver Canucks is a very scary situation. But in my lifetime, I have never seen this city, and I'm including the Mets and the Giants and the Yankees, I have never seen this city more galvanized and more excited than that 1994 team. I mean, look, we won 54 years, right? 1940, 1940. How sick and tired uh, we were hearing of that from Islander fans every single day, 1940. So it took 54 years, but I got to tell you, the way it went down and winning a game seven in Madison Square Garden against the Canucks and watching Leachy and Messier and, and obviously uh, Mike Richter, all those guys skate with the cup. It was almost worth the wait. You have a great story and you've recorded it in a book, The Highs and Lows of a Radio Bad Boy. What does that mean, you being a radio bad boy? And what did what is it that the, the message that you want to give with what you've been through with those listening right now? Well, listen, if anybody can appreciate this, it's you, Ronnie. I mean, look, I I wasn't doing Saxon or DoorDash commercials and I wasn't hanging out with supermodels at Studio 54. <laughs> 
<laughs> but but you were certainly the bad boy of the New York Rangers, and whether it was getting into it with uh, the late great Herb Brooks or whatever it was, I mean, you know, you still uh, were you were an amazing player, a great player at every single stop. But you had that kind of off the field stuff, uh, off the ice stuff in your in your case, and that's been me. You know, I struggled with drugs and alcohol and gambling for. Uh, four decades. Uh, I've been to rehab twice. I've had very public terminations landing me on page three of the New York Post in the cover of the Sun Sentinel, Miami Herald. You know, I'm married now 28 years. My beautiful wife, Danielle, who you know very well, Ronnie, a great girl. I've got two kids now. My daughter, Ava, is 16. My son, Gabriel, is 11. And they're at the point now where they, they Google stuff and their friends talk. And it became embarrassing, to be honest, Ron, some of the stories about, I know your dad's a big star, but he got arrested for this and he got arrested for that. And it just became embarrassing. And you know, years ago, I decided that enough was enough. And I cleaned up my life. And thank God uh, things are going very well for me right now. But the message is, it's never too late, you know, because there's lots of people that told me, Ronnie, uh, through the years that you'll never get back to New York. Your career is finished. Your beautiful wife, the attorney, she's never going to stay with you. She's going to leave you. They're going to find you OD'd and dead somewhere in some hotel room in Miami or New York City. And every time somebody told me stuff like that, that fueled me, Ron, to prove them wrong. And I can stand here today at the age of 53 with many years of sobriety under my belt and hosting a big time show in New York City. And again, celebrating my 28 year wedding anniversary just last Thursday. I'm here to tell folks that if you stick with it and you wake up every day and realize you're important, you're worth it. There's nothing you're going to, nothing you're going to outside of a terminal disease that you can't beat. Hey, Sid, Jake Brown here. And it's a great story for sure. I grew up listening to you on the fan and, you know, living in Connecticut, I'd come home and watch Mike and the Mad Dog on Yes Network. And I know your time at the fan is remembered well. Do you do you want to be back in the fan one day? Do you see yourself in a position where they would welcome you back? Obviously, right now they're struggling a little bit. And, uh, you know, I want to ask you about uh, an old friend, Craig Karn, in a second. But do you see yourself getting back in the fan or do you have interest in being back in the fan at some point? Well, for starters, thank you very much, Jake, for uh, for the kind words. And, you know, it's funny. My stay at WFAN, Ronnie and Jake, was uh, very short. You know, I was only really there on a daily basis for five years. Now, I've done fill-in shows and been back and forth really for 17 years. But the only time I spent there doing daily shows was between 2001 and 2005. And yet, if you ask anybody to write a book on WFAN after Mike and the Mad Dog and I missed, I may very well be the next chapter. So it was five years. But, but when you're in the New York Post, like I said, and Daily News and, and doing all the crazy stuff that I did, uh, along with the fans who really enjoyed my work, it, it felt like 20 years. Look, I'm enjoying what I'm doing right now, guys. I, I got to the point in my life down in Florida when I was hosting my morning show in Florida. I was hired by three different sports stations, and eventually they all got rid of me because I couldn't just do sports because, again, I'm a 53-year-old guy. I've got two kids. So do I love the Rangers? Yes. But am I worried about the direction of my country? Yes. I couldn't sit there and talk about who scored the game-winning goal for the Rangers last night or who's going to catch Eli Manning's touchdown pass on Sunday. So I decided to take all those things and make it one big morning show in Florida. And it worked. And it got me a job up here in New York City. So could I go back, Jake, to just talking about sports four hours a day, every day? I don't know. Because here I've developed relationships with guys like Phil O'Reilly, Sean Hannity, the president of my show. And I enjoy talking about all that stuff. So I think it would be difficult. Now, look, guys. I'm a businessman, right? So if FAN says to me, we're going to put you and Craig Carton on together in the afternoon and give you a, whatever, some seven-figure salary, I'll be on Hudson Street in 15 minutes. <laughs> I mean, but, but, but I don't know if I really want to give up what I'm doing now, talking to congressmen and senators and political people. And, and they talk sports too, by the way, just to talk about one bet at bat for two hours, if you know what I'm saying. So it's a good question, and it all comes down to money and opportunity, to be completely honest. And, you know, Carton, 
was close with you. You guys are friends. Have you spoke to him? He's free now. We'll see where he lands next. But uh, have you spoke to Carton since he got out? I did speak to Craig on Sunday via email. Not phone yet, but via email. Well, Craig and I uh, had a very, very rough go of it. Craig and I were partners together. I hired him back in 2000 when I was hosting the morning show on WNEW, the sports guy. And my original partner, Scott Kaplan, got fired. And I actually was the guy that went to my program director, Jeremy Coleman, who now works at Sirius XM, and said, hey, hire this guy, Craig Carton, because I've worked with Craig, Jake and Ronnie down in Florida the year before. And Craig came to New York and went to work with me, and we just did not get along. It ended very, very ugly. I went to WFAN. He went to 101.5 Jersey guys. And we spent the next 10 years just kicking the crap out of each other on our local radio shows. It really hit more than me because I would always get into trouble. So every time I got suspended and or fired for drugs or drinking or something, he would take an inordinate amount of glee in it. He, he would talk about it for hours. <laughs> My Aunt Beverly, she lived in, uh, in Manalapan, New Jersey, and she would listen to his station, and she would say, what's with this guy? On 101.5, all he does is talk bad about you. And, and it got very, very ugly. But I can tell you that about four years before Craig got arrested, I was doing fill-in shows in the summer of 2015 at WFAN. And Mark Chernoff, the boss, said, listen, if you need to come here and do fill-in shows, I can't have you fighting with both Mike Francesa and Craig Carton. I can't help Francesa, but at least make up with Carton. So we did. We made up. And, and, and when Craig got arrested, he'll be the first to tell you this. He only talked to a, a, a few amount of people regularly. And I was one of those guys. I reached out to Craig a lot, a lot. And so we had a nice email conversation on Sunday. I've read the rumors. Maybe Sid and Craig, maybe Sid and Craig. I don't know, guys, but uh, we are friends today, and, and he's going to get his life back on track. He's a talented guy, and if I can help him, I will. I feel like the fans said, kind of has to bring him back. They're struggling. Mike left. You know, Joe and Evan aren't crushing it. Uh, I enjoy them, but they're just not really a drive-time show. Joe's talking about the golf course every day and getting out of here. Uh, so it, it seems like a match made in heaven. Obviously, it has to work with advertising and everything, but Chris Olivero's there and wants to bring him back. Do you see Carton being back in the fan whenever he is oh, fully yeah. free? Oh, yeah. You know, he'll be back. I mean, I, you know, people don't know this, but back in 2000, when Craig came to work with me, my producer at the time and my in, uh, my intern was a very young kid by the name of Chris Olivero. Chris Olivero split the week back then. He did three days with me and three days with Howard Stern, worked alongside Gary Delabate. And Chris and I got very close. Chris was the reason why Scott Kaplan got fired. And of course, Chris was with me when I brought in Craig Carton. And when I left and went to the fan, Chris and Craig Carton developed a really strong bond and very good friendship, which is obviously still in place now 20 years later. But I'll tell you, a quick story, Ronnie and Jake. Before Craig came to work with me, I was working with Scott, and I was on King's Highway in Brooklyn, walking down the street. Back then, you couldn't go onto a computer and add music or, or, or uh, movie cuts. So I would go to a movie store back then, get VHS tape, I swear to God, and I would have um, my board up the next morning, actually put the tape on and tape what they were saying on the movie so I could play it on the radio the next day. So I took Oliveira to the movie store, King's Highway in Brooklyn, and he said to me, he said, Sid, one day I'm going to run this company. I swear to God, he was 20 years old, he was an intern. He had zero authority. He said, one day, Sid, I'm going to run this company. And I looked at him and I said, you know what, Chris? I'm a betting man. I would bet big money right now. You are going to do that. And sure enough, you know, maybe three years after that, he was in a very big position of power at CBS. And now he comes back to Entercom and is going to run all eight New York stations, including WFAN. And he is the guy that makes all the decisions. So if Chris Olivero wants Craig Carton and or Sid Rosenberg or both to work at WFAN, he's the guy that can make it happen. Well, Sid, i got to pull you back to hockey right now because there is a level of excitement with Ranger fans, hockey fans. We're going to assume that hockey's going to get started by July 30th. The Rangers are going to be in the playoffs playing Carolina. What is it that when you think about how different is this is going to be, they're going to have a training camp and they're going to be right at it into playoff format. What are your thoughts on what this is going to look like for you? I don't like it. <laughs> 
I mean, I did read today that uh, since early June, 26 NHL players have already tested positive for COVID-19. I don't know, Ronnie and Jake, whether it's hockey, basketball, or, or football, or if a lot of guys start coming down with this and you start getting into really big numbers, if they'll even continue with their proposed plans or even finish a postseason, I don't know. But look, I was really enjoying this Rangers season. I mean, I remember a couple of weeks before we actually stopped the season, the Benajad was just on fire. Five goal games, three goal games, two goal games. I mean, I've seen some hot Rangers in my day, Ronnie, including you and Pavlich and uh, and Messi. Hey, but what I was seeing from Benajad the last couple of weeks was blowing my mind. And Panarin, of course, is a magnificent player. But, you know, there's no momentum, guys. They haven't played a, a regular season hockey game in months. And all of a sudden, out of pick up and play basically an NCAA basketball tournament to, to, for the right to win the Stanley Cup. So, listen, I love the Rangers. I love Ranger hockey, and I love hockey. I'm going to watch it. Don't get me wrong. I'm going to watch it. But I don't like the idea of these seasons resuming. I don't like a 60-game baseball season. I almost think all these sports would have been better off, wrap up the season, get everybody healthy, get back into training camp in October, November, and come back in 2021 with a new season. With that said, can the Rangers win it? I mean, I guess anybody can, right? I mean, there's no, again, there's no momentum. There's no red-hot team. They haven't played months. So if one team catches is fire. We've seen ACs move on to, to big time play. So anybody can win it, but I, I just, it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel right to me, I guess is what I'm saying, Roddy. I love the Rangers, I love hockey, but it doesn't feel right. Well, I have to say the flip side of that, as a player having played, the unknown to me, it, it's what I would really be looking forward to because you don't know what's going to happen. Like you said, anyone can win. Good bounces, bad bounces, good goaltending, bad goaltending. The unknown is what it makes it exciting for me. So I don't mind this at all. Uh, and I understand your thought on you want to see the best hockey possible with players having played for a couple months. But this, I know players uh, at an elite level, they'll find a way to figure it out. Bad coaches are going to get exposed. Good coaches will do well. And very determined, focused players will play well. So that's what makes it so the dynamic of all that makes it fun for me looking forward to them playing. So I hope that uh, things will be good. They'll be good to go. Whether it's made for TV or an audience, it won't matter to me. I just want to be able to watch the game. Having said all that, I got to end it there, Sid. You're a great guest. Love talking with well, you. We have I, to do I it again. To, I have to say one last thing on the way out. First of all, your analysis just now is beautiful, Ronnie. And, and I think you're right. That is the beauty of it. But I want to say one, one last thing on the way out. You know, as a kid, I was too young to remember the Nolan Ryan trade from the Mets. So I go back, the first trade from any of my teams that really made me cry. It made me cry. The first trade ever was your trade. And I'll tell you why. Not only, Ronnie, were you my favorite player, and you still are to this day, Eddie Mio. I loved Eddie Mio. He was tremendous. And let me say, Eddie Johnstone, 30-goal scorer. Ugliest hockey card ever, by the way. But the guy was a really good player. So when they traded you, Eddie, and Eddie to Detroit as a child, I'm telling you, that was the first trade that broke my heart. Well, thank you for that. And you talk about crying. When I had to leave New York, I did a whole lot of crying. (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't wasn't like I was being traded to L.A. I was being traded to Detroit at the time, which it ended up being the best thing for me because I I got out of all the distractions of New York, which I greatly appreciated, but I need to get it focused back on hockey. So it was probably the best thing for me at the time, but I did miss, uh, I, I, uh, listen, you know, I, I miss and, being and a New went, York Ranger. And, and you went to Detroit and had that 33 goal season right away. I remember that very, very vividly. So you kind of left off, uh, you know, picked up what we left off in New York, 33 goals in Detroit. That was a great year. So, and you got to LA eventually and played with Wayne Gretzky. So you have nothing to complain about. <laughs> yeah, no, not at all. Anyways, good talking with you, Sid. We got to do it again. All right. I'd love to. I love you, Ronnie. You too, Jake. Thank you, boys. Thank you so much.
center ice for a special presentation. That puts the icing on the cake for episode 31 of Up in the Blue Seats. Thanks to Jake Brown for producing the show. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get podcasts. Please give us a five-star rating on Apple, and we would love if you wrote a nice positive review there. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at rondugate10. Thanks for joining us, folks. Have a great 4th of July. Talk to you all next week. Stay safe.